0: that uh, this passage talks about divorce. And um, you know, some of us, many of us, statistically, we would have to assume that half of us in this room have experienced it based upon uh, the trending statistics here in our nation. Uh, you must understand the grace of God. You must. There is forgiveness. There is grace. There is healing. There is progress. There is even remarriage. The Lord knows how to fix what is broken in our lives and wants to. We should not read these things as some condemning letter from our Heavenly Father. He's setting a standard in the law so that we understand the severity of what he's saying. And we should always view this, especially through the lens of the New Testament and the grace that God has for us. So, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. So some definitions are in order as we begin through this process, uh, both in the original language and by way of... The, scripture. the Hebrew word translated divorce uh, has as its root the idea of hewing or cutting off or cutting apart. Surgery is sort of what's being described here, the cutting of things apart. So you have to um, get the severity of what the Lord is saying. Amputation, you know, dissection. Uh, the two shall become one flesh. Uh, So the Lord is trying to paint the picture for us of how graphic divorce is in this. Uh, Next point to notice is the legal document mentioned. He has to write a certificate of divorce. Now, if you're thinking that like this just has to be something that he scrawls out, the term certificate holds a legal connotation to it. It probably had something along the lines of, you know, today we would have to go get something notarized. You can't just scrawl this thing out yourself and give it to somebody. It's the idea of you've got to go through a legal process here. Even the point of where it says putting it in her hand. You know, today, you know, a lawyer himself or he sends someone who puts you know, a legal document in somebody's hand and says, you've been served. Uh, That also strengthens the concept of marriage, right? Because even inside Christianity, there are those that want to act like, oh, this legal thing that the state does, you know, God didn't intend that, you know, what is marriage? It's not a piece of paper. It's a commitment. No, there's a legally binding contract that is involved with one person committing themselves to another. I've heard you know, a handful of times young people saying, well, we're married in heart. Well, no, you're not, right? Because you can walk out the door at any minute and there are no repercussions. Uh, there need to be commitments and repercussions to marriage. And that is what uh, the Lord is saying here, vows that are taken. So regardless of the various opinions the public had for what was justified in divorce, Uh, and or what uncleanness meant, Jesus clarified what God meant here in Deuteronomy when we hear him in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, where he says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Uh, again, the severity of separation and the standard that the Lord is putting on this. You know, you get right to the punchline, the hearers in the Old Testament and the hearers in the New Testament on this subject then exclaimed, well, then it'd be better that, you know, you're not getting married. And essentially the Lord says, right. If you're not committed to this for life, it will be better. Now, if you're taking the approach, as some do, of, well, that's way too heavy. Marriage is that heavy. The Lord wants this level of commitment. People are taking it far too light, right? They're being compelled into these vows and these agreements through nothing more than the lusts of their flesh. Uh, That that wears out very rapidly. It goes away very soon, right? Uh, You know, that whole idea of, oh, romance preserves the marriage, that's a fiction. That's absolute fiction, right? Commitment preserves the marriage, which preserves romance. It's absolutely the opposite. If you're thinking that the blazing inferno of romance and lust are going to preserve the marriage, you've got another thing coming. Uh, you know, The commitment is where this whole thing is rooted in. So the Hebrew word translated unclean, this is the debate that they all have. What is unclean? By the time Jesus shows up, right? Rabbi Hillel has this idea, and he's teaching all of his followers, unclean is any offense that the husband may experience. They literally had written it down that if she doesn't make your breakfast the way you like, then that's an uncleanness to you, and you're justified in divorce, Well, how simple is divorce at that point, right? You know, you don't like the way he organizes the garage. So, you know, divorced. You don't like the way that she cooks the eggs. Divorced. Literally, this is what it had come down to. You know, Shemai, another um, rabbi of the day, had the strictest sense of what's being described here, which Jesus confirms with that concept of sexual immorality. That term uncleanness itself implies the meaning of sexual immorality. It literally is translated the nakedness of a thing. So uncleanness is confined uh, to that. Uh, That statement there in the beginning where it says it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes. Uh, While this is just putting it in the effeminate, it's also Women viewing husbands in the same way. And I'll get to that in a moment. If so, if either party finds no favor, it's the idea of grace, forgiveness. You know, okay, someone's messed up. Can you forgive them? Regardless of what everyone else is saying around you. Can you forgive them? Through your relationship with the Lord, right? It might become necessary to say, I'm not going to stay here and endure this abuse anymore. Therefore, I'm moving out. Those things are all allowed by the scripture. But if you still have the grace to say, you ever get your head screwed on straight, we can fix this relationship, then the Lord allows for this. A clarification. Again, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus was speaking on that subject. In verse 8, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Permitted, right? He did not command, oh, if you find an uncleanness in your spouse, you must divorce them. It wasn't a command. It was a permission. Who is the hardness uh, on their part? Is, Is this the hardness of the spouse who has been offended by the sin? Or is it the hardness on the part of the unrepentant individual who's in sin? We don't know. Well, what he's saying is it's the hardness heart that allows. It gives permission. Again, it's not a command. We should, we should be very careful about marriage. Uh, you know, there's the subsequent experiences that come, right? Uh, you look at the, the crime rate in our nation. And do the association of the number of particularly young men who were raised in fatherless homes, right? Broken marriages. Right? God said that He hates divorce and that it clothes you in violence. What an interesting statement, right? It will clothe the culture in violence when divorce is so prominent. The number fluctuates at 50%. Uh, Unfortunately, we've had occasions where certain times in the late 70s into the early 80s, the numbers were cresting over 55%. More marriages ending in divorce than are remaining together. Our our culture has lost grip on what this means. Uh, The answer is only found inside the walls of the church. I mean that. Until, particularly men, start returning their hearts to the altar of the Lord and worshiping him. We're going to continue to see this torment go on. Certainly wives and mothers and then obviously children and families as a whole. But until men start leading, leading their own hearts, leading their own hearts. Right? In our culture has that mentality of, oh, well, I just had to follow my heart. Are you kidding? I mean, have you have you experienced the nonsense that your heart generates? You know, it will lie to you like nobody's business. You you cannot trust your heart. Jeremiah tells us that that the heart is <clears throat> deceitful, desperately wicked. Right? Uh, it, actually, it says deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Right? Isn't it weird how you do something? And then it's years later before you can finally admit to yourself what was really going on in your heart back there. Uh, The heart isn't what needs to be followed. The Lord is the one who needs to be followed. His word is what needs to be followed. And this is the thing that will protect and preserve a marriage. So, because God knows the hardness of their heart, both... The offended and the offender are allowed this opportunity. Biblical reasons for divorce would also include abandonment and obviously physical abuse. I've heard a lot about mental abuse, and it's a worthy discussion. It's a worthy discussion. I'm not trying to make light of it, but let's face it. If you're living with another human being, you're experiencing mental abuse. We're all sinners. It takes grace to live with another human being. That's the only way you're going to have success. right? It's a wonderful thing if you live with someone that it takes very little grace to live with them. That's beautiful. That's a wonderful but it still takes grace, doesn't it? Right? Because they are a human, and their flaws are tormentuous. Other times it's very profound. It still takes grace. Right? And, and that will preserve and protect every single relationship that you have in life. Being gracious with that snarly boss. You know, being gracious uh, with your teenager. And that's just, you know, generally speaking, ladies. Uh, <clears throat> Some are easier than others. Being gracious. Grace is what is going to carry us through in these things. You know, an example... Uh, of proof text from the scripture regarding the abandonment. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15 specifically says, if the unbeliever in a marriage, that is, departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. but God has called us to peace, right? You can also stay if you want to, right? It's not a command. If you're married to a, you know, you were both unbelievers and you became a believer and they don't want to follow you into that. If, if you are willing to stay and put up with the conflict, because it's going to be conflict, you're serving two different masters. It's going to be conflict. If you're willing to stay, stay. Right. And Paul even says that you might lead them to salvation and the process and we've seen that many many times it's a wonderful gracious thing but if they want to leave and you can find a contentment within the lord to allow them to leave the lord gives grace to the situation and says that it is allowable right not commanded right because marriage and the protection and preservation of it is something that the lord desires but it is allowed i i wanted to add i had mentioned it moments ago to this it's commonly taught that in ancient israel only men were allowed to divorce wives but jesus gives us contrary information on that subject in mark chapter 10 at verse 12 he says is if a woman divorces her husband and marries another she commits adultery so you know again a discouragement from divorce, but a confirmation that in the time women were allowed to divorce their husbands also. Back to Deuteronomy 24, looking at verse 2, when Jesus has departed from his, excuse me, when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, Or if the latter husband dies who took her as wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be wife after she has been defiled. And that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. A lot of people focus on the defilement spoken of there. Woman, man, divorced, moves on to the next marriage. That marriage ends through divorce or death, and the individual can't return to the first person to be remarried. The Lord describes it as defilement. It's actually not the focus of the verses. Uh, The defilement is simply both the idea of sexual defilement they've been with someone else but more significantly it's the spiritual aspect of they have been bonded to another individual more than anything what you need to focus on in this what the what the passage clearly in the original language is drawing the attention of especially the jewish people to is the significance of marriage first one failed Now you're in a second one. Uh, If you've always got that idea that, well, if this doesn't work out, I could return to that one. Then you're not going to put your full effort into the next one. He's trying to strengthen marriage. The Lord is putting commands out there that cause the people to have the commitment, right? Maybe it is. They didn't have the proper commitment in the first one. They were too young or who knows what. And now they're in the second marriage. The Lord doesn't want them to have a flippant attitude about the second marriage, right? Look at the statistics. More than 70% of second marriages end in divorce. I chuckle. I didn't mean to. I'm not not saying that in a humoristic way. Third marriages, over 80% of them. Fourth marriages, I mean, we're getting down to such small fractions. I'll tell you this have two close friends I shared this last week. married, divorced, remarried five times, five times. In their fifth marriage, right? each of them came to know the Lord. They are so bound together, serving the Lord now, served here in this church, in this ministry, very strong, And their relationship with one another leading, you know, the slew of children that they have, you know, from different marriages and their own uh, to the Lord. Their family is coming to the Lord. You know, the husband now very prominent part of the ministry that he's involved in out west, deeply committed to the Lord. That marriage, I I have I have 100 percent confidence in that marriage. They're both committed to the Lord. They learned along the way that the missing portion was Jesus Christ. You know, you're trying to, you know, fulfill something that was designed by Jesus Christ. Marriage is designed by God. It isn't. It isn't a commitment designed by men or destroyed by men or changed by men. You can slap it the label. On, you know, homosexual marriage, all these different things. None of those things are marriage. God created and defined marriage. And, and therefore, he is the one who can tell you how it will successfully work. I, I uh, Well, I'll avoid that subject. I'll just move ahead. How about that? So, uh, I wants them to take this seriously. The, the permanency of the thing. Both marriage and divorce you know the, the the idea that if you're married that should be permanent if you're going to get divorced the lord actually puts the mark on permanent you are supposed to be in this one permanently if you're not then you're out of it permanently uh, that needs to be a serious consideration so many people treat it with a very very flippant attitude and no commitment to it at all i uh, this permeates our culture so badly i in ministry had a young lady from another family in our family car many years ago decades ago now she at the time was 12 years old and I'm listening to the discussion in the back and she says 12 years old I'm not getting married and I that perks my ears up and I listen and you know it's 12 year olds 13 year olds having a discussion And she says, no, I am going to have children, but I'm going to have two or three children by two or three men. She's 12. Because each of them will be committed to paying me the maximum amount of child support. I can then also go on welfare and then live without having to answer to a man for the rest of my life. 12 years old. Listen, you can sit here and like me, maybe think, oh, well, that's the extreme of the case. Our culture is presenting that to the young people directly or indirectly. Uh, Gail Irwin, Calvary Chapel pastor, said children, right? Uh the, I forget how he worded it. He said that they, as far as what he wanted to teach them, they've taught more than I've taught. Right? They watch, they learn, they listen, they observe, they take in, they catch more than they are taught directly. And our culture is teaching the younger generations. You know, the generation that's being taught right now that's coming, is going to be a frightening You know, people say that God help us when we are dependent upon them. It's going to be dangerous, dangerous. Uh, This idea of how um, serious marriage and divorce are, it's something that we personally need to have in our conduct, in our lives, in our speech, in our character, that those who, whatever they catch from us, They're they're catching God's understanding, amen? Look, even if you've been divorced, even if you've been divorced, maybe you've been divorced more than once, you need to be exuding the whole severity of what God intends right here for their benefit, amen? Do we understand this? These young people, we want them, right? Do we not want them to experience better than perhaps what we've been through? Right, we want them to have loving, deeply committed, very fulfilling relationships. You know, the 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 idea of what the Lord intends here. So, uh, verse uh, five, uh, he says, "When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness." to his wife whom he has taken. That's going to take a lot of planning, right? Probably elopement is not encapsulated in this idea. If you're able to say, hey, would you like to get married and we'll take the next year off? Wow, right? Here in that, God's desire for this relationship to be deeply enriched. That they would be bound together in a way. I mean, if you're sitting there right now thinking that is an absolute pipe dream. Who could do such a thing? Understand that that's the the Lord's desire for marriages. That they would be able to know one another. To spend that much time with one another. To learn. To change. To be melded together as one. The the experiences and the commitments very, very important. Or the marriage this was intended as i said to strengthen the marriage ephesians chapter 5 verse 25 right husbands we better all know it, it says husbands love your wives just as christ also loved the church and gave himself for her we have read that heard that so many times i like joe foch's interpretation of this when he said what that means for us men is that we enter into her world and we die there yeah no right I feel like I'm dying when I have my hands in a dish pan I don't know what it is you know I'm saying it's, it's death <clears throat> it's the pain in my lower back actually <laughs> you know, those sinks are not designed for my height you know I have to be bent over and just so you have to learn to do things to die. Uh, Wives, same commandment, right? To serve, to be servants. Uh, That is not the approach to marriage that even the church portrays. There's so much selfishness entangled in the image of what we describe as marriage today. Selflessness and servitude is what the Lord is calling us to. Now, He shifts gears a little bit. In verse 6, no man shall take the lower or the upper millstone in pledge, for he takes one's living in pledge. So we're going through a series of laws. I'll remind us that the older generation has mostly passed away. The younger generation, who's mostly not experienced the law firsthand in this way, is being taught the law directly from Moses before they enter the land. So this is a review of all the legal requirements for the nation. And here the Lord shifts <clears throat> from discussing marriage into discussing money. And the discussion here is about taking out loans. You, you do not get to take as security from someone, hey, I need to borrow money from you. Fine, here, here's the money you need, but I'm going to take your ability to make money away from you. Take the lower or the upper millstone. They can't make any money when you do it. If you're going to lend and you want a security deposit against what you're lending, you want some collateral, it needs to be something that doesn't even affect the income of the person. I have unfortunately had the experience of watching several supposed Christian businessmen who are engaged in this sort of practice where they lend and sell and they take such exorbitant amounts of interest in lending that the person is always living right on the edge of financial destruction. Uh, That's what the Lord has called believers to do. So careful practice that the Lord is saying, the command that he's forbidding the collateral affect their income. Verse seven, if a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren or the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then that kidnapper shall die and you shall put away the evil from among you. This isn't the Lord saying if they kidnap people but they're really nice to them, that's okay. The Lord is saying kidnapping, right? So he puts all Slavery under this umbrella. The scripture absolutely forbids slavery. Uh, you know, this culture, critical race theory, all that's being taught that points at the Bible and says, oh, the Bible endorses slavery. No, it does not. Okay, the servants that the Lord is speaking of in the nation of Israel are much more like what we would call employees today. Right? You could sell yourself and become a slave or a servant, but it was only for a period of time. You know, I always, you know, try to give the example. If you if you owe ten thousand dollars in debt and you can't pay it, you can go to someone who's wealthy and say, I'll work for you for the next five years if you pay my ten thousand dollars. And and just so you get the concept, because you're gonna go live with that man and he's gonna give you room and board. Right. So your rent and your food and the payment of your debt are involved with the fact that you're going to work for him for the next five years. You've made a financial agreement of employment, essentially. So what the scripture describes as servitude and slavery later, when you get in the Old Testament under the New Testament, rather, and in Jesus day, you're hearing about slaves and, you know, those who have fled slavery. You're talking about the Roman Empire. And how Rome had kidnapped and captured and enslaved people. And then Paul is giving instructions as to how those slaves should obey uh, their masters. It's not the scripture endorsing the concept of slavery. It, it is, in fact, completely condemned right here. As far as being a believer, not allowed. Death death sentence is attached to it. So it's not even like other situations where the Lord commands his kings to not multiply wives or horses and then they do anyway. You know, and the Lord basically allows them to experience their self-inflicted punishment for doing those things. For disobeying God, now you gotta reap what you have sown in those circumstances. When it comes to you know, in capturing and enslaving people, death sentence is what the Lord puts on that. You need to have it very clearly in your mind, especially in this culture. The scripture absolutely condemns it uh, without any, you know, feigning from it at all. Um, Verse 8. Take heed in an outbreak of leprosy or COVID, you know, that you carefully observe to do according to all that the priests, the Levites, shall teach you just as I command them. So you shall be careful to do. Remember, what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt. Now, you might want to write down there somewhere, if you don't already have it as a cross-reference, Numbers chapter 12. What occurred there was Miriam and Aaron, brother and sister to Moses, began to speak against Moses and his leadership. Now, it seems to have been more focused from Miriam than it was Aaron. But the Lord summarizes it by saying that they're not, in fact, speaking against Moses. They're speaking against God. There's a severity within Christian leadership that the Lord is trying to relay about uh, the anointing of the Lord. if God has uh, caused an individual to be a leader within Christianity, then those of us that are being led should be very careful about ever speaking against someone. you know Paul tells uh, the pastors that he's training in the New Testament do not even entertain. An accusation against an elder unless it be by the mouth of two or three witnesses people are going to complain Uh, there's always somebody who's offended it's it's usually someone that's living in sin is what's going on Miriam speaks out against Moses Aaron joins her Aaron seems to back off a bit Miriam really pours it on I'm just paraphrasing the whole account God demonstrates his power and causes Miriam to be struck with leprosy. In that moment, there is repentance, both of Aaron and Miriam, but Miriam has to be isolated for one week from the nation of Israel. Point being that even if someone as prominent as Miriam has to be quarantined, according to the scripture, then that quarantine must apply for everyone. No no one gets to escape that. God wants the protection for the health of the body of believers. So in verse 10, when you lend your brother anything, again, separate subject, you shall not go into his house to get his Pledge. You shall stand outside the man to whom you lend shall bring the pledge to you. And if the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight. So the two subjects, one is first protecting the dignity of even the poor. If someone is so desperate that they've come and they're in need of assistance or a loan, humiliating them should not be part of what you're doing. Right. You don't. You, you know, he says, uh, quite frankly, it's probably a blanket or an outer coat that he's going to give. Uh, that's why it says you you can't keep it overnight. It's his warmth. Uh, so he's going to give his outer coat or his blanket to you. He's so poor that that's what he has to offer. You don't get to go in the house and rummage around. Well, I mean, it's just an outer coat. It's just a blank. What else have you got? You know, how about that cooking pot? Or, you know, oh, so you've got a goat in here that you didn't tell me about. Huh? No, if you are of the heart to lend whatever he, he offers to you, let him bring it out to you. You don't get to go in and search the home. God is protecting the dignity of even the poor in that situation. Yes, lend, but also be gracious. So that idea of not going in and uh, you have to return to him uh, the blanket. You shall, in any case, return the pledge to him again. Verse 13, when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own garment and bless you, and it shall be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. You've got to consider how severely you're affecting the person who's in poverty. I, I just, I'm, I'm really bothered by you know, these supposed Christian organizations that are, you know, going to help you buy a car, but you've got, you know, in no credit. So when you go and you sign up for this, they're going to charge you 20%, 28% interest. You know, look, I can't afford the car already. Shouldn't my interest rate be lower? You know, shouldn't it be easier for me to do this? You know, same thing with homes. Uh, You want to be very careful about those who claim to be Christian and behave in such a way. Protecting the poor and the needy. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens. That's a foreigner from another land who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give them his wages and not let the sun Go down on it, for he is poor and he has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. A couple of concepts contained within that. Um, Fairness in employing uh, needs to always be done. So if someone works, you know, I do just mean fair, right? Sometimes minimum wage is fair. Uh, the Lord isn't, you know, like right now our culture is doing this thing where we just keep moving minimum wage up. That is killing our economy. That is killing our economy, that whole process. You know, how how can they say, you know, uh, that you can't set minimum wage? There, there was a time in this country where there was no minimum wage, right? Inflation was incredibly low. During that period of time, if you set no minimum wage, then what happens is the people who are working for really small amounts say this place stinks. The place down the road is hiring for a dollar more an hour and they leave and they go down the road and work. And, And the man who owns the business that suddenly has either no labor or not enough labor has to increase his wages and he has to put less in his own pocket. It balances itself out. When you say, uh, we're moving the standard up to here, and now this this is the minimum wage, 15, 18, 20, $25 an hour. This is minimum wage. Well, now, no one can make money. You know, the person who's trying to pull all of these resources together, create a business, right? Those of us that have been business owners or management know how much labor is involved in doing all of that. Right? And we know, right, if, if you were getting paid minimum wage for each one of those jobs you're doing, management and books and all of the various things, you'd be the wealthiest employee there. And honestly, what ends up happening is you're usually making less money than a lot of people working for you. There is a process that the Lord says, he's talking about, you're saying, uh, I'll pay you for the day. And then they show up and you're like, well, you only worked half the day, so I'm only paying you half. The unfair holding back of wages is what the Lord is saying. And if you do that, if you're shifting the goalposts all the time on those that work for you, you're taking advantage of people. I I painted houses for years, and uh, there was an individual who we ran out of work, and this man called us and said, Will you come paint the interior of our apartments? And he had quite a reputation. And I agreed with my business partner to go do it, but I said, I can guarantee you we're going to get ripped off. Guarantee. He's going to keep changing what our requirements are and what our pay is. And so we played that game. And we got right down to the end where he was finally like, I don't think I want you guys working for me anymore. And we were like, "Uh, we don't think we want to work for you anymore. So that was a mutual agreement. But he said, tally your bill and come see me and I'll pay you off. Well, we tallied our bill. And we needed $1,200 for the last of our work that was going to be there. And I said to my business partner, we have to walk in and we have to ask for 15 And he said, I can't do that. That would be dishonest. I said, I can guarantee you if we walk in there and ask for $15, we are coming out with the 12 that we deserve. And this argument went between us. I said, how about this? We walk in, we ask for 15 If he offers to pay us anything above $1,200, we will voluntarily tell him, no, 1200 will satisfy it. He agreed to that. We walked in, asked for 15 40 minutes of dickering, $1,200 is what we got. Amen. Exactly what we needed. He felt like he got a deal. We felt like we got ripped off. We walked out the door barely making what we needed to. The Lord is saying that shouldn't be the method of the christian the believing employer honesty and wages due, pay them out don't manipulate anyone in the process why because he might come complain to me the heavenly father right they're all brethren at this point you know vengeance is mine saith the lord i will repay right He'll literally take it. You might not ever see it monetarily, but he will take it out of their account and he will put it in yours. Something will cost you less. Repairs won't be needed. God will take care of you, trusting him and the process. I would then superimpose that over onto marriage. Right? You feel like somebody owes you something? Stop complaining to them. Go to your heavenly father. And let your heavenly father deal with your brother or your sister. That That's the most effective way to deal with those things. Take your complaints to the management and let him deal with the outcome. So, <clears throat> uh, James chapter 5, verse 4, proof text says, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, cry out in the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. He will contend with them. God will deal with them. God is not mocked, whatever you sow, you shall reap. Verse 16, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sins, uh, meaning sins that require death. If you've murdered someone, you're going to be put to death. This culture did this at this time all around the nation of Israel. Some man commits murder, go find his family, wipe them all out. And the Lord is saying that's not going to be our method at all. Uh, The prophets uh, do a couple of different overlays regarding this subject. Uh, Both Jeremiah and then Ezekiel, I would encourage you to write down Ezekiel chapter 18, study the whole thing when you get an opportunity, but particular Ezekiel chapter 18 verses 1 through 18, the Lord addressing this subject says, I do not want you to use this proverb in the nation of Israel anymore at all, right? Right? He gives a com- an imperative command and says, do not do this anymore at all. The proverb that he then quotes is, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Today, we've simplified it and we say, well, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Okay. We're implying that the father is in fact responsible for the ill conduct of the child. And the Lord is saying, not true. Every single child, right? You've you've seen good people raise terrible children. I've also seen terrible people have wonderful children. Okay? Every man is accountable for his own conduct. Our culture has stretched this out a long ways right to where well you know i commit domestic abuse because my father committed domestic abuse no you don't you're abusive because you're a jerk you know i'm a drunkard because my father was a drunkard no you're not you're drunkard because you're a drunkard you don't get to blame anybody else we know that truth without question in our own hearts about our own conduct and the ways we've experienced in life. Somebody's making excuses like that. It's false. Uh, We want to be very careful about not, not perpetuating that whole idea. It's one of the reasons that we don't involve ourselves. I'm very involved with drug rehabilitation, alcohol rehabilitation, jail ministry, all of that. Pray for me again, jail ministry. They just canceled this again. There's a whole wave of COVID going through. And so they they don't move them around inside the jail when that's going on. So they can't take, you know, 10 guys from different cell blocks, bring them in and put them in one room. So for the next two weeks, uh, we're off on that and I have to call them back. So pray. Uh, There's a group of guys that have been coming very steadily and uh, being discipled in that period of time alcoholism drug addiction jail ministry a lot of this blame shift is being taught by psychology and counseling and self-help groups you know you're an alcoholic because it's hereditary okay not hereditary it is not hereditary okay it's hereditary fine adam gave it to all of us right the sin that we all have Oh, genetic studies have been done. Guess what? They haven't. No, they haven't anywhere. There there has been no genetic connection made, and even in the propensity toward these things. That's a convenient uh, misinformation so that I can just float along and blame somebody else. I'd love to. I'd love to. The whole idea of these things being an illness uh, came from Bill Wilson, founder of AA, who was taught that his alcoholism was an allergic reaction to alcohol by a doctor who two years later was stripped of his medical license. Not because of that, because of other things he was doing that were wrong and incorrect and completely illegal. Guy was a quack. The insurance industry and the government recognized, hey, if we can label this as an illness, then we can bill the insurance companies and make money. That's what's going on right now. What's going on right now? I interviewed with a company in Bangor, wanted me to come to work for them as a counselor in their company. They're telling me outright in the interview, I'm not making this up, we don't care if they come in here high on cocaine or marijuana or drunk on alcohol. We just don't want them using opiates because we supply them with Suboxone. So you're the drug dealer now, and you're making money off from them, and you don't care that they aren't being freed. Yeah, I didn't get the job, right? Because what I'm presenting to them is, no, I'm looking that every single person that I counsel is going to be freed from whatever they're dependent upon. You want to, you know, look, if a drug dealer will allow me to come into his den and counsel the people that he's dealing to, I'll do that. I'll do that, but I'm going to be preaching freedom the whole time that I'm there. And they're telling me, no, you can't do that. Well, then I guess this isn't going to work out. Right? It's sick and twisted that an organization like that is even allowed to exist in our culture legally. Right? They do not want these people to even try for freedom. they are going to keep them on the chemicals that they're supplying and getting paid for. If somebody comes in, they, they literally go through the process of getting them insured so that they can now get Suboxone so they get paid. That is messed up, man. That's really messed up. Uh, here... Everyone's responsible for their own sin. And that's a big reason that our culture is so adrift, because of the blame game. It's my parents. It's my upbringing. It's the school. It's the system. It's the government. No, it's you. And it's me. My biggest problem is me. Sometimes your biggest problem is me. You know, it's something we got to work on. Ourselves taking responsibility for ourselves, living before God, accountable for our conduct. So we'll have to uh, pick up at verse 17 next week. Will you stand with me and we'll pray? Unless you want to stay the rest of the afternoon. we can make it through. I've got notes into chapter 25. Okay. Read Ezekiel chapter 18. Uh, hear, hear what the Lord is saying about taking responsibility for ourselves. Uh, it's going to take a lot of grace for you to relay that message to the people around you. And you'll embrace uh, yourself. You'll be astonished at how much people don't embrace that idea. How they 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 don't even realize how much they're they're shifting the blame for everything that they do and everything that they are. If if you'll embrace this idea personally, it'll change you. If you'll embrace this idea and preach it culturally, it has the potential to have a dramatic effect on the world around us. So as the Lord sees fit to use you. Father, we thank you for your scripture, for the truth of your word. Help us to be men and women that live according to it. Lord, we long to see your kingdom come and your will being done in our lives. Help us to be surrendered, men and women, filled with your Holy Spirit walking in fellowship with you, accomplishing that will. Use us, Lord. Open doors, opportunities, and conversations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.